and it's wonderful to see us gathered here in the middle of August, actually really the beginning of August, uh, still in the middle of summer for us as a church, and it's just great to see us gathered here together as a church, just praising God, worshiping Him, going after all that He has for us. And now, as we turn in His Word to have a heart that says, Lord, would you speak to us today? And will we learn from all that you have for us in your word today? And we love being able to read the Bible here together and hear from what God has for us through his word. Ultimately, it's God's word that we need. It's not my words. My words are uh, nothing in comparison to what God's word actually is. Uh, And that's what we need. And sometimes people are always like, I just wish God would speak to me. And I think if we ever want to hear what God has to say to us, we really just need to turn to Scripture. We can be guaranteed to hear what God has to say to us if we do that. And so we're going to do that today as we continue on this series, The Gospel According to Mark. You can turn with me to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 22. And we've been in this series for 10 weeks now. Can you believe that? This is week 10 of this series. And I've been really enjoying it, so I hope you have too. Uh, But it's been great as we've just been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we've really been going at it with these big questions, which is, um, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And what does that mean for us today? And so we've been taking all of this one thing at a time, and we're going to continue that today as we, as we read from Mark chapter 8. And so I'm going to go ahead and read this. You can follow along on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you today, or you can follow along with me in your Bible if you've got that and you're a super Christian. And, uh, <laughs> and the highly sanctified and righteous people bring their paper Bible to church. Just want to put that out there. We all know that. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, all right, let's jump in. Mark 8, verse 22 to 26, it says this. It says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. All right, let's see what this means for us today. If you're uh, taking notes this morning, you can write down this title for the message, I Can See Clearly Now. I Can See Clearly Now. Maybe you started singing a song in your head as soon as I said that. I don't know. Um, why don't we pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into this this morning. Father, we thank you that we can gather here this morning. And just in the midst of all the busyness of life, we just pause in this moment. We just ask that you would come and that you would speak to us today. Lord, that you would just direct our hearts towards you, that we would draw near to you and that you would draw near to us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the freedom that's found in your name. We thank you for the firm foundation upon which you give us to stand as we live our lives. We glorify you. In your mighty name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen. I've got at least a thousand things wrong with me. (laughs) Uh, You may feel the same. I don't know. There's many things that are wrong with me, but... Sight is not one of them. I've got 20-20 vision. I've got 
good eyesight, perfect eyesight. Where are my good eyesight people at? You around? A couple of you. Yeah, we can all see each other in the dark. It's wonderful. I can, it's, it's easy to tell. I've got good sight, 20-20 vision. That's one thing that's not wrong with me. I've been out hunting with my father-in-law, uh, uh, Victoria's dad and uh, Pastor PJ, and uh, we've been out hunting, and I can see a white-tailed deer in the middle of the night through fog from 500 meters away. No problem, okay? Yeah, be impressed. Let me just say, be impressed. It's about, it's about all I can do when we're out hunting, but it's something, all right? And uh, uh, so this is not an issue with me. In fact, actually, in my family and Victoria's family, our immediate families, I am the only one in our families that doesn't have glasses. And I just realized that last night as I was kind of putting this together. And I'm very proud of that fact. And I'm going to hold on to that at least until maybe a few more years when I'm going to need some reading glasses or something, inevitably. Um, and you can all make fun of me at that moment and say, remember when you said you had 20-20 vision? Yeah, how's that going for you? And uh, we will cease to be friends in that moment. But last night I, I, I asked Victoria, uh, you know, I have good vision, but what are some things that I'm blind to? Uh, in life. And husbands, if you ever just want to, you know, get, get to reality, <laughs> let me just say this. Don't, don't ask questions you don't want the answers to, okay? <laughs> we were eating dinner. Victoria, what are some things that I'm blind to in life? It was as if she had a whole list ready to go. She didn't even need to think about it for a moment. Just immediately, she just started, like, listing off all of these things. Very first thing she told me was, you are blind to changing the toilet paper roll in the bathroom, okay? And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you never change the toilet paper roll. I'm like, what, what are you, where is this coming from? And actually, just this morning, she walked out of the bathroom holding the empty toilet paper roll and said, see what I mean? I said, okay, maybe you have a point with that one. The second thing, right away, she pointed outside into our backyard and said, you are blind to that pile of wood that is sitting beside the shed, which you piled up there in May, saying you were going to do something with it. And I said, I am doing something with it, okay? I don't know what yet, but it's going to stay there until I figure out what to do with this. And then the last thing that she told me is... you. You are blind to how loudly you chew bananas. I was like, what? where is this coming from? Like, tell me how you really feel. And so we had a whole argument about how loud I chew bananas. Apparently, I chew my bananas too loud or something like that. Um, so church, please pray for me. And uh, I don't know what's going on here. I'm sure there are more things than just that. I'm trying to take these things to heart and improve as a husband. I get it. But in certain areas of my life, I can see, but in other areas of my life, apparently, I am totally blind. And you might be the same today. There might be areas of your life where you can see clearly, but where you in other areas are totally blind to certain things that are going on. And I think that we live in a world that no matter where we're going, the world is trying to capture our gaze. It's trying to get us to look at things. Advertising does its best to attract our sight. As we walk downtown, there's advertisements all over the place, and it's almost as if they're yelling, look at me, look at me. Uh, direct your sight towards what I have to tell you. Self-help books tell us that we need to get a vision for our lives. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a vision for your life, but I think that all too often our sight is misdirected when it comes to our lives. And our vision too often lands itself upon the superficial and the material types of things. But there's a bigger reality that is at work in life. 
And the truth is, we don't just need to get a vision or, or, or a, a picture of the good life. We don't just need to set our eyes on the next best thing or whatever it might be that we think will satisfy those deep desires and needs within ourselves. We don't just need to uh, picture, uh, you know, our life in 10 years from now and how great it's going to be. Picture the life you want as if we're going to somehow manifest that into being. What we need as followers of Jesus and even if you're not a follower of Jesus, and as churches, is we need our eyes open to the reality of who Jesus is. And we need to learn to participate in God's project of opening our eyes to see him and to see a a larger reality that is at work in the world because of who Jesus is and to see how we fit into all of that. And in this section of scripture that we're looking at this morning, I think that it's good for us, like, we almost need to place ourselves in the position of the disciples here, and we need to allow ourselves to be questioned by Jesus about our vision and our understanding, and we need to seek to have our eyes opened today, and our sight restored, and our vision of God's kingdom, his reign and his rule, we need this expanded. And so today we're in Mark chapter 8. We were also in Mark chapter 8 last week. And I just want to recap really quickly something that I mentioned um, 10 weeks ago at the beginning of this series. Uh, And it's important for us to note as we read this morning the way that Mark's gospel breaks down. You can go ahead and put up this first slide, Alex. Um, The gospel of Mark, it breaks down into like two different sections. The first half in chapters 1 to 7, Mark is telling us that the king is here and his name is Jesus. But the disciples have a hard time seeing this fully. And then in the second half of Mark's gospel, Mark shows us that the disciples at at that point, they see that Jesus is the Messiah, but now they're blind to the fact that Jesus needs to suffer and die. But this chapter, Mark 8, is the hinge point between these two. It's it's a really important transitional chapter um, that we're going to continue to dig into today. And so why don't we dive into what it is? And it's a, it's a big, immense, intense passage of scripture. So be forewarned as we move through this this morning. We're going to start reading Mark 8, verse 22. Mark writes, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Blindness was a big deal in the first century. The lack of understanding regarding hygiene, lack of effective medicine, exposure to the elements, it left many, many people blind. We don't deal with it in the same way anymore. Earlier this week, I got an eyelash in my eye, and it was terrible, and I'm dramatic about these things. And I got an eyelash in my eye, and I hate touching my eye. It's like I'm not into it at all. It's a terrible thing, the idea of touching my eye. It's horrible, but I had to do it, and I got the eyelash out of my eye, and I'm fine today. Uh, Barely, but I'm fine today. Uh, But imagine you got an eyelash in your eye in the first century, and you had to get it out, and you touched your eye with dirty hands that have never been washed with soap, and an infection happened in your eye. I mean, that's about all that it would take for you to potentially lose your sight. And so if you were to walk through the streets of a city in the first century, encountering blind people would be a pretty common thing. It would be fairly normal. And it's easy for us to imagine this blind man on this day, sitting in the street, not much hope for the future. But he does have one thing in particular that's going for him. 
And that's it. He's got a couple of friends who believed that Jesus could heal him. I love that. These friends, they begged Jesus to touch him. And I wonder, if we just pause there for a moment, I wonder, are you that kind of friend for your friends? <laughs> are you the type of friend that you're just like, you're bringing people to Jesus saying, listen, you need a touch from Jesus. You need to encounter him because I believe he can heal you and change and transform your life. I think all of us need to be that kind of friend and need to get those types of friends in our lives. Those types of friends that bring us towards Jesus instead of pull us away from Jesus. And so, like many other healings in Mark, uh, Mark writes and emphasizes Jesus' touch in healing this man. And it's almost as if it's this indication of the healing power of God's kingdom that just, it radiates out from who Jesus is. And this kingdom power, it overwhelms sickness and uncleanness and impurity and sorrow and injustice. And I love seeing this at work so practically in this gospel. Because this dynamic of God's kingdom where Jesus reaches and he touches those in need, it should drive us today as his followers to be doing the same. To be the type of people that rather than cutting off contact with others uh, when we become a Christian, instead we reach out ourselves to the poor, the blind, the hurting, the broken. We engage these people as Christians. We serve them. We pray for them. We offer them hospitality as we are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world today. And so we reach out to those in need in the same way that Jesus reached out to this man. In verse 23, it says that he, that's Jesus, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And I think, by the way, this is such a beautiful image that I skip by all the time when I read this gospel. I mean, just pause for a moment and just consider this detail. Jesus reaches out his hand and takes the hand of this blind man gets him on his feet. This man can't see, but Jesus guides him by the hand and directs his steps, leads him through the streets, around obstacles, takes him out of the city. I love this detail. Jesus takes him out of the city, away from the crowds of people. Jesus is not here to perform a magic trick to wow the crowds into believing in who he is. Jesus wants to connect intimately with this man, and so he takes him by the hand, the disciples following behind, and leads him outside the city to heal him. goes on, it says, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Jesus spits on the man's eyes. Pretty gross, huh? (laughs) Sounds really strange to us today, but actually at the time, this was fairly normal. Spit was considered medicinal. It was considered to be an an antiseptic, and it was good for people. It was a normal part of a healing procedure at this time. If you had read Mark's gospel in the first century, this would not have been strange to you whatsoever. So Jesus does this. He spits and uh, goes through this procedure with him. And then verse 24, it says, he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. This is a strange story. I think it's okay sometimes we read the Bible and we say, okay, that was really strange. (laughs) What's going on here? This is a little bit weird. And that's okay to wrestle with that. And it's okay to even interrogate it a little bit 
and it causes us to go deeper into what it's meaning. It's a strange story, and actually, this is two stories in one. This story has a double meaning, because on its surface, this is a story about a blind man being healed by Jesus, and it's a beautiful story, and I love this story. And like many other stories in Mark's gospel, it's a story of Jesus healing people, And I love reading stories about Jesus healing people. It's a beautiful example of what Jesus comes to do. These healings, they serve as an appetizer for us um, for the total and complete healing of all brokenness when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom once and for all. But through these healings, it's like little appetizers of it. It's like we get to just taste it, the power of God's kingdom at work. I think it's awesome. But also, when we read the story of this healing, there is one major difference compared to all the other stories of Jesus healing people. Because this man is not healed all at once, but he's healed in stages. And sometimes I read this passage of scripture, and I think to myself, like, is Jesus having an off day here? <laughs> like, bad, bad day at work, Jesus? Like, what's going on? You couldn't, couldn't heal this guy all at once? What's the matter? Like, did, did Jesus lack faith to heal him or something like that? Like, what is happening here that this is the case? But I think as we consider this more carefully, as we think about what's taking place here, we start to realize that Mark has placed this story here to communicate something else to us as well. Jesus has purposefully performed a partial healing. This act was premeditated. And we need to understand that Jesus' miracles were, were very often more than just an event of healing, although they were that. I don't want to take anything away from that. But they were also very often a parable or an illustration, almost a metaphor of spiritual reality, something deeper taking place under the surface. So this is a story about a blind man, yes, being healed. But also this is not a story about a blind man at all. But also this is a literary device used by Mark. Now, Hear me carefully when I say that this is a literary device, okay? By saying that, I don't mean that this isn't a true story. I believe this is a true story. I know there are some people that would love to uh, take all of the supernatural events of Scripture and just kind of say, ah, maybe it's just like a, a teaching moment. It's just allegory. It's just metaphor. It wasn't real or anything like that. I don't think that at all. I think that absolutely this was a true story, and I don't want to strip it of its supernatural power whatsoever. Not at all. I fully believe the Bible to be divinely inspired. But also, I believe that Mark, in writing this down, was writing as a human. And he wasn't in some sort of trance just writing this, not knowing what he was doing. But rather, Mark was using his human faculties, his thinking, his personality, who he was, his intelligence. And he was uh, led, I believe, by the Holy Spirit, whether he was aware of that or not. And he intentionally positioned this story where he did, to speak also to a bigger truth that is at work here. Mark uses the word see nine times in this short little story or a variation of it. And we've got to understand that, yes, it's a story about healing, but also this is at its core a story about seeing. And when we keep in mind that this is a story about seeing, we see it in a whole new way. Like what I did there? That was just for you. You can have that for free. Um, If you were just sitting down and reading through the Gospel of Mark all the way through, you would note that that this passage uh, is very similarly related to the last passage that comes just before it. Uh, I preached on this last week, 
listen to it on the podcast if you haven't heard it. But just last week, we learned that Jesus had just finished asking his disciples, do you have eyes but fail to see? Jesus has been saying to his disciples, don't you get it? You're missing out on who I am. You've got eyes, but you're not seeing me. You've seen these miracles that I've been doing. You've seen me feed the 5,000. You've seen me feed the 4,000. You've been with me, and yet you guys, disciples, you're still blind to the things of God's kingdom. You are blind to the fact that I am the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the long-awaited king. And so we've just finished reading that. And then comes this story where this man's sight is being restored in stages. And it's showing us the way in which Jesus also is clarifying and opening the eyes of the disciples to who he is. He's transforming these disciples from people who are blind to the reality of who God is to those whose eyes are opened to the reality of who God is. And we as disciples today go through a very similar process in our lives. Through this story, I think that we as modern-day followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, and by the way, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. It's not like some hierarchy that there's Christians and then there's disciples or something like that. It's not the way it works. Disciple, it just means you're a follower of Jesus, and you're patterning your life after the way of Jesus. You want to live your life like Jesus as his disciple. It means basically apprentice or student of Jesus. And we are all that if we are Christians. But we need to allow ourselves today to be questioned by Jesus about our own vision. And we need our eyes opened. We need our sight restored. We need our vision expanded so that we can effectively proclaim the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so what Mark is doing here through this literary device is he is showing how the disciples, like this blind man, are beginning to see who Jesus really is. They see in part, but it's still a little bit blurry. It's not totally clear to them yet who Jesus is. We're going to keep reading and see their eyes continually open. We're going to go into uh, quickly one of my favorite sections of Mark. And I'm not going to go into this too deep this week, actually, because next week we've got a sermon uh, being preached from this section, which I'm about to just gloss over here. Uh, And you're not going to want to miss it, actually. We have the one and only Adrian Jervis preaching next week. It's going to be fantastic. You guys don't want to miss out. Adrian is actually one of the smartest people I know, and he communicates the gospel brilliantly. And so make sure you're here for that. It's going to be awesome. And so I don't want to to steal everything he could say. So I'm I'm not going to go too deep into this. But here we go. Uh, Verse 27, it says this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Just like Jesus takes the blind man out of the village, so he takes the disciples out of Israel into this area called Caesarea Philippi. It's located high up. You can see across the whole Jordan Valley. It's, uh, it's a place that was pagan to its core. It, there was worship of all kinds of gods. I have a, uh, a little picture of it here that we can quickly uh, just take a look at. This is kind of a, a reconstruction of Caesarea Philippi, and you can see there are all these uh, different temples uh, the Temple of Augustus, the Court of Pan, who was this other god, Temple of Zeus, Upper Tomb Temple, Lower Tomb Temple. It was uh, a, a city, really, that was built around, ultimately, worship of Caesar, 
Augustus as king. And this temple of Caesar Augustus was built uh, just a, a couple of decades before the birth of Jesus at this time. It was there to honor Caesar. It was built by Herod the Great. And uh, Herod the Great, same Herod the Great when Jesus was born was trying to kill him. Um, and uh, the city was named Caesarea Philippi after Caesar and also after Philip, Herod's son. And it is here, interestingly, that Jesus takes his disciples for the moment that their eyes are going to be open to who he is. It's like, why does Jesus come to this place? I don't know exactly, but perhaps it's because it was this place of pagan worship to these other gods and kings, and Jesus is making it totally clear to them that he is not just a king, he is the king, and all of these other gods are nothing more than just a sham, and Jesus is the reality to which every one of these other gods is just a parody, and it's here in this territory that he's asking his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? And they're like, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some one of the prophets, but Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you guys say that I am? And I've preached on this many times, and uh, Adrian will preach more next week even, but at some point we need to reckon ourselves with who Jesus is. Every one of us has to face that. In the first century, there were many ideas to who Jesus was. And in the 21st century, there are many ideas for who Jesus is. But ultimately, we all need to face that question at some point in our lives, and we need to wrestle with it. Peter answered, he speaks up on behalf of them. He says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. Peter says, you're the Messiah. Messiah, or your translation might say Christ, which is the Greek uh, Christos, which is a translation from the Hebrew Messiah. And literally, this word means anointed one. It's a word that uh, Jews had used for the one who would come to set Israel free, the anointed one, the king of all kings, the one king who would come to rule all the world. And Peter speaks up on behalf of all the disciples. He's the spokesman here, so to speak. And he makes this declaration, you are the Messiah. And for the very first time in Mark's gospel, and in, really in scripture, we see the disciples saying, you're the Messiah, you're the king. This is the first time that we see Peter and the disciples, they get it. This is a big moment. This is a huge moment. And as we read through Mark's gospel, there's been a tension. I don't know if you felt that tension through this. Maybe you haven't. I felt it anyways, uh, as you read it. Because when we read the Bible today, we already know the end. We read it and we know that Jesus is the Messiah. It's like, what's the big deal? We get it. Been there, done that. In fact, you, I don't know if you remember the opening line of this gospel that we looked at, again, 10 weeks ago. It's the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You just have to read line one and Mark gives away the end, sort of, okay? And so we read this, and we're like, yeah, we know Jesus is the Messiah. What's the matter with these lame disciples? Peter, bro, what's, the, what's wrong with you? Don't you get it? He's the Messiah. It's so obvious. And it may be obvious to us today, but it wasn't necessarily obvious to the disciples at that time. They didn't get it. They struggled with this. They didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah until this moment right here, their eyes are opened, you are the Messiah, and then Jesus tells them not to tell anybody about him. <laughs> it's like, what? First, Jesus warns the blind man not to go into the village. Now he warns the disciples, okay, great that you recognize me as the Messiah. Now don't tell anybody about me. 
And this seems to go completely against everything in our evangelical bones, doesn't it? We're like, this makes no sense. I've got to tell somebody that Jesus is the Messiah. I grew up singing a song in church, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Anybody know that song? Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Exactly. Okay, that's enough of that. Um, little all-song all life center today. That's very nice. Even though I felt like I was the only one singing, so thank you for just ha- leaving me hanging. Uh, and it's like, this is what I grew up with. Go tell it on the mountain. But Jesus is saying here, don't tell anybody about it. And it's like, what is going on here? This is such a strange thing. Now, of course, keep reading because Jesus would tell them to go and tell the whole world, take it to the ends of the earth. So I don't want to hear anybody coming up to me and saying, Luke, I don't have to go tell anybody about Jesus in my life because Jesus told the disciples, don't tell anybody about this, okay? That's not what I'm saying at all. But for this moment, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Why not? Why wouldn't Jesus want everybody to know at that moment that he is the Christ? Well, we've got to remember that Messiah or Christ at this point It was not only a spiritual title, but also a political title. And those things were actually really intertwined in the first century. And to go around claiming that you are a king, the king, in a world that already has a king is treason. It's not something that you would just want to go around necessarily doing. But more than just that, I think the disciples and Jesus have two different understandings of what the Messiah means. See, people at this time had many different thoughts about who and what the Messiah should be. Most people, including the disciples, thought of the Messiah as a mighty warrior who would come, would start a war with Rome, would eliminate the Gentiles, which were non-Jews, and would usher in a world of Israeli domination. This was their image for who the Messiah was and what the Messiah should be doing. And along comes Jesus. And he says, finally, you guys get it. Yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you were expecting. If we keep reading in verse 31, Jesus says he then began to teach. So this is a new teaching. Now that they recognize he's the Messiah, now they're ready for the next part of the teaching. They've started to see in part, but it's still a little blurry. So Jesus is going to teach them. So then he began to, to teach Uh, them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that we learn and that the disciples learn that Jesus is going to die, not only die, but also suffer. And this messed completely with the disciples' view of who the Messiah should be. Suffering, dying, that's not, that's not king behavior. That's not Messiah behavior. Very few people at this time would have ever connected the Messiah with suffering. Now, there are prophecies in the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible that looks forward towards the life of Jesus. There's a prophecy in Isaiah about somebody called the suffering servant, And it was this figure who would suffer on behalf of Israel uh, before God. He would represent Israel before God and their sin, and he would suffer for their sake. But nobody in the first century was connecting the suffering servant with the Messiah. No, the Messiah was a powerful conqueror, not somebody who would come and suffer. But Jesus comes, and in Jesus, he is the Messiah 
and he is the suffering servant. They are one and the same. And this would have been so outrageously shocking to these disciples. I think it's a good exercise every now and then for us to read the Bible and to try and think about uh, the viewpoint that these disciples would have had when Jesus told them this. It, It would have been insane. We would have reacted in a similar way. These claims would have been so outrageous. It would have shattered everything that we had grown up learning and believing, which is why, as we keep reading, we learn that Jesus, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, bro, bad idea, man. Bad idea to rebuke Jesus. But again, Peter grew up with an expectation that the Messiah was going to come and kill, not that he would come and die. So maybe we should give him some, some, cut him some slack. Verse 33, uh, after Peter had done this, uh, when Jesus uh, turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. This is not what you want to hear Jesus say to you. (laughs) Not exactly, like, I I would much rather hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, than get behind me, Satan. (laughs) This is pretty intense. Get behind me, Satan, as in you are standing in my way. Get behind me. You're out of line. Now, of course, we need to read this and understand that this is exaggeration. Peter here is not, Uh, I really wouldn't say a correct reading of this scripture is to imagine that he is necessarily possessed by Satan here or something like that. But at this moment, unknowingly, Peter is acting the way that Satan would act. Why? Because he's tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. It's exactly the same thing that Satan did tempt Jesus with in the wilderness at the beginning of Mark's gospel. When Satan says, don't go the way of the cross and suffering. Go the way of fame and wealth and power, Jesus. That's the way to do it. Let me tell you, that's the way you should go. Sounds like a very similar temptation that we all hear often in our world today. But this is also the same attitude that the Pharisees, just earlier in this chapter, uh, came to tempt Jesus with when they demanded a sign from heaven, which, again, I spoke about just last week. They wanted Jesus to flex his Messiah superpower to display the kind of power that they thought the Messiah should have. And then Jesus warns his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees who are tempting me in this way. But now what does Peter do? He does exactly that. He tempts Jesus to avoid the way of the cross. Why? Because Peter doesn't see Jesus clearly. He's like the blind man. He's been led by Jesus. He's experienced the touch of Jesus. But Peter is still on stage one of seeing Jesus. He sees the Messiah, yeah, but the rest is blurry. He doesn't understand that the Messiah is going to need to die for his sin and for our sin as well. And that he wouldn't stay dead, but he would resurrect and defeat sin and death once and for all. But Peter is blind to what Jesus must do. It's like he sees people, but they look like trees walking around. And Peter's distorted view of who Jesus is, I think, is based on three things. The first is a misreading of Scripture. It comes from a picking and choosing from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. It came from a reading of prophecies about a warlike Messiah, but ignoring the ones about the suffering servant. I think that Peter's distorted vision also comes from selfish ambition. 
We don't know exactly what was taking place in Peter's heart here. We can only speculate. But it seems to me like he wanted Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that he had in mind for him to be. The kind that would take down Rome, that would establish a new kingdom and a new rule. And that would have been very good for Peter. Because if Jesus was setting up a new kingdom where Jesus ruled, I mean, Peter would be like second in command of that kingdom. Not bad. Let's not pretend that this attitude wasn't a reality for the disciples. We know it was because in the very next chapter, these same disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they were still thinking of the kingdom through the lens of mighty, dominating, earthly kingdom where they would rule over other people. They were asking Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Jesus like, you still don't get it. But in this moment where Peter is rebuking Jesus, uh, he had an interest in Jesus not being the kind of Messiah that he was that would have been, in the eyes of the world, beneficial for someone like Peter. And thirdly, I think that Peter's distorted view, his distorted sight, came from his worldview. Your worldview is how you see the world. It's the glasses that you wear. It's not what you look at, it's what you look through. Your worldview is what frames your view of the world. And Peter was born into a worldview, once again, that said the Messiah was a violent, warlike figure that would defeat Rome and usher in a time of peace. And because of these three things, Peter's vision of Jesus was so off that in this moment, it was satanic. Let's just let this sink in for a moment. I think we need to feel the discomfort and the weight of this on our shoulders this morning. Because we too are disciples of Jesus. And much of the time, we're not better than Peter. All of us in this room have a vision for who Jesus is or who we would like for Jesus to be. And maybe you're here today and you feel like you can see Jesus clearly. That's awesome. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you see Jesus, but it's fuzzy, it's unclear, it's distorted. And maybe you don't feel like you see Jesus as well as you would like to see him and his plans and his purposes. And I believe that your eyes can be opened even this morning to the reality of who Jesus is. But I think if we're not careful as followers of Jesus, there are times when how we see Jesus and therefore how we think about God and how we view life and so on, if we're not very careful, our view of Jesus can be so far off that it's borderline satanic. And I think we need to wrestle with the discomfort of what that actually is for us today. I think that for us today, more often than not, our blurry vision of who Jesus is can come from exactly the same things that Peter was dealing with. We misread scripture. We are filled with selfish ambition. And we have a warped worldview. Let's look at these for a quick moment. We misread scripture. The Bible is long. It's complicated. It can be difficult to understand. Let's not pretend that it's not. It can be easy to take the Bible and to treat it like a pick-and-choose buffet. Just take what you like and leave the rest. I, I love buffets for that reason, okay? It's like I'm going to load up on this meat, potatoes, all the good stuff. That broccoli is not looking good today. I'm going to leave it right where it is. No, thank you. <laughs> if we're not careful, we can do that with Scripture, um, however well-intentioned we may be. And some of us, actually, we do this on a subconscious level. Most of us don't read the Bible 
and say out loud, you're wrong, Jesus. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. I don't think you're right. Very few of us would ever do that. But many of us, me included, by the way, we live our lives as if Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Say, Jesus, yeah, I've read all that stuff about self-denial. I've read that stuff about, you know, uh, the perils of pursuing money. And, uh, you know, I've read the stuff about loving others as myself. And you're right. Of course you're right, Jesus. I know you're right. I read this. That's very good. But then we live our lives, and the outworking of that doesn't match what we actually say we know to be true. We don't love that person. We don't want to be generous. And our actions betray us to what's actually going on in our hearts. We say, I like Jesus' teaching on love, but I don't like his teaching on sin, so I'm going to believe one but not the other. I'm going to pay attention to that but not this. Uh, That's what I'm hungry for today, a big large helping of Jesus' love. Let's scoop that onto the plate. But anything that has to do with sin, no thanks. I'm going to skip over that. Uh, I'm not into it. I'm going to move on to the next thing. But I think it's important that we don't treat Scripture as a pick-and-choose thing, that even when we encounter some stuff that's hard for us to deal with, that we're willing to wrestle with it anyways and to recognize as followers of Jesus that he's right and we are not. And that we would be willing to actually deny ourselves, even if what we want for ourselves might be more comfortable. And this is why it's so important for me as a pastor that we are a church that is built um, upon theologically sound and substantial preaching. That this platform is not a stage for me or anyone else to get up here with the goal of entertaining or providing just self-help or lifestyle enhancement messages. That's all well and fine, but... For me, it's far more important that you know Jesus than have an extra zero in your bank account or a portion in the driveway at home. One of those things may be enjoyable for a moment, but it's not going to save you or give the fulfillment that you actually need in your life. And this is a platform entrusted to us by God to illuminate his word to us as people. Not even just me to you, but from God to us. And I think it's a really important thing that we do that. Secondly... The reason that our view can be distorted is our selfish ambition. Just like Peter, we all have a stereotype that we want God to fit into. We wish Jesus was more like this. We have an image of the Jesus that we wish he was. Some of us want a warrior Jesus that will destroy our enemies. Some of us want a progressive Jesus that's only love and no judgment. Some of us want a Jesus that will make them rich quick. Some of us want a Jesus that will save our soul but not interrupt our life. Some of us want a Jesus that will justify whatever it is that we decide to do. And so we want the kind of Messiah that will bow down to our ambitions instead of one for whom which we will bow down and give up our ambitions. And thirdly, our worldview distorts our seeing of Jesus. As people living in Sweden, which is a prosperous and comfortable nation, we can't help but have a distorted worldview of who God is. And again, we pursue a God that's like one part therapist, one part genie, one part life coach, one part financial advisor, one part fan club. And we live with a worldview that we are the main character and everybody else in our life is just a supporting character in our life, in the movie that is our life. And we often treat God in the same way as a supporting character in our life who can come alongside us and help us towards our goals. But ultimately, we're on the throne and he's just our advisor or helper. And I think that when these three things overlap, misreading of scripture, selfish ambition, and a distorted worldview, when these things 
interact and overlap in a negative way, it's easy for how we see Jesus to become blurry. And to be honest, I'm disheartened many times as I look sort of across the fabric of, uh, especially I would say the evangelical church right now. It feels to me that more and more, and this, by the way, I'm going to include myself in this. It's not a, an, a, an indictment on anybody else, but these are, as I say this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but I think that more and more, too many people, uh, we just make up our own Jesus. And we're getting away from the Gospels, and we allow secular values to undermine the church, and we appropriate worldly ideas, and we import them into who Jesus is, and then we try and follow a made-up version of who Jesus is to justify the things that we do or we don't do, or whatever flavor of Jesus it is that we want to follow for that given time of our lives. And so I think that this really is something that we need to wrestle with. The question isn't, whether or not we're off in thinking about Jesus. The question is, where are we off in thinking about Jesus? And I don't want this to be a guilt trip for us this morning. That's not my purpose here. Rather, I want this to be an encouragement, a warning shot for us today, because I never want to hear Jesus say to me or to you or to our church, get behind me, Satan. And I think it's so important that we're able to guard against that type of attitude that can so quickly undermine our faith if we're not careful. And so very quickly as I finish, as the worship team comes and we continue to move on, how do we make sure this doesn't happen? A couple of quick thoughts for you that you can put into practice this week. One is just recognize your blindness. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that right now we know in part, but there is coming a day when we'll know in full. And We know in part, as in right now, we don't have all the understanding. We don't know fully. No matter how long you followed Jesus, no matter how, uh, you know, how much theology you understand, we still only know in part. And I think it's important for us to recognize that there will be parts of faith that are blurry to us still right now. That's a reality. But let us be moving to, in the direction of Jesus, that our eyes are continually opened as the Holy Spirit is working in us. We're not perfect. We don't know everything. Let's humble ourselves to be able to say that today. I also think it's so interesting that Peter, uh, we have to remember, Peter is the one telling this gospel and Mark is the one writing it down. Mark's gospel is Peter's uh, gospel, really. Um, And it's so interesting to me that Peter chooses to include this story about Jesus rebuking him. Because if you read Matthew's gospel, the same story happens, but Matthew has all this praise for Peter. You read Matthew and you're like, wow, Peter, you're the man. This is amazing. You know, uh, Peter makes this declaration, you are the Messiah. And then Matthew writes, uh, Jesus uh, telling, and I believe that Jesus did tell him this, that yes, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you loose uh, on earth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Yeah, Peter, you are the best. It's amazing. But then in Mark, we read Peter's telling of the same story. There's no praise. And I can just imagine Peter in the room with Mark, and he's recounting what happened. And Peter's like, I remember that day. And here's what I remember. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's like this moment of humility that's coming through from Peter as he's retelling this story. And I think that this whole exchange can just remind us that if the Apostle Peter can be off, we can be off today as well. But also, if the Apostle Peter can get over this rebuke and his eyes can be open 
and he can be that rock upon which Christ builds his church, that we can get past our blindness as well and our eyes can be open and that Jesus can build his church on us as well. The second thing I think that we can do is practice discernment where we sort of develop a godly x-ray vision to see through the many messages of the world that come at us and try to tell us who we should be separate from God. And sometimes I think a good exercise is just to like, when you see an advertisement or something or whatever it may be, an influencer, whatever it is, it's almost like valuable to just vocalize the types of things that this ad is trying to tell you uh, you can be that are just like, empty promises, right? And so next time you're, you know, on YouTube and an ad comes up or something like that, and it's, you know, inevitably it's for like a brand of deodorant. And if you put this deodorant on, you will like have a six pack immediately and, you know, you'll get the girl or the guy, they will just love you and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's useful to just be like, oh, I know what this is trying to promise me. Popularity, uh, vanity, uh, being, you know, accepted, all of these types of things. And it's just empty promises that come up, but it's important for us to be able to discern those things every now and then and recognize how against the greater vision that Jesus gives us because of his kingdom, these things are nothing and they're just a parody and they are the gods that so many people worship today. I think the other thing we can do is we can read the Bible every day. I know that's the Sunday school answer, but I think Sunday school gets it right. Read the gospels every day. It's not that easy to do because we've got this illusion of self-sufficiency that we don't need this. And it draws us from scripture. But I think it's important that we read every day, get into it, see Jesus through God's self-disclosure of himself and his word. I think we can also memorize scripture. How about that? Take a step forward from just reading it, internalize it, memorize it. Turn, to the, turn those passages over in your mind's eye day after day, that that which you uh, cast your gaze upon in your mind's eye is scripture. And we can think about all of the ways that the world is trying to shape us uh, to love and desire and imagine and fear and hope according to the world's agendas. And instead, we can develop the capacity to see what life can look like according to God's intentions for us. Lastly, we can pray. We can pray that God would open our eyes in the same way that he was seeking to clarify the vision of this blind man, but also of his disciples. We can pray, God, would you do that for us as individuals? Would you do that for us as a church? We long to see you. We long to know you more. We long to see you clearly, to understand who you really are and what that means for us. And to close, before we just take communion together, in just a moment, I just wanna read Ephesians 1, verse 17 to 19. May this be our prayer this morning for us as a church and as individuals. Paul writes this. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I pray that that would be the case for our church as we continue on in this summer and and onwards as well.
the eyes of our heart would be opened in order that we would know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance and the incomparably great power that he has for us who believe. Let that be our, our heart's cry this morning. We say, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you, Lord.